Gospel reading today is from Luke 19. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, written, he said to them, My house will be the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. We're coming to the tail end of our uh, Punk God series, and I said at the very beginning uh, that the cross of Jesus is uh, the most punk event in the history of the world, that it's a middle finger to the status quo, to the establishment. And I wanted to end with what I thought at that point to be the second most punk event, and that is Jesus cleansing the temple. It's very punky. But as I thought about it this week, I'm not sure that it's number two. I've been thinking more about the incarnation itself, the fact that God became human is a very punk event. And so we're going to end uh, with that next week. And maybe by then I'll give you the ranking of one, two, three of uh, top punk events in the Bible. This morning we're looking at uh, a group called, we're well, looking at this passage, but through the lens of a group called MC5. Anyone know where they're from? MC5? Any fans out here? Well, they're from Detroit. So, Motor City 5 became MC5, and they started, they were founded in the middle of the 1960s, and just a few years after the Beatles sang, I want to hold your hand, and now that seems kind of square, not very threatening. Around that time, MC5 started carrying rifles up on stage and acting out the lead singer falling dead from a fake sniper attack at the end of each concert. Well, that's pretty punk. And they also had a very uh, pasty white lead singer, kind of like me, but what he had was a giant afro. So they were very into theatrics. And they came on the scene, really, nationally in 1968 at the height of the cultural upheaval surrounding Vietnam War and the Summer of Love and the Civil Rights Movement and the violence at the Democratic National Convention. And they recorded a live album. The first song is called Kick Out the Jams, and it goes like this. The wiggling guitars, girl, the crash of the drums, make you want to keep a rockin' till the morning comes. Let me be who I am and let me kick out the jam. Yes, kick out the jams. I done kicked them out. Bob Dylan, it ain't, but what it lacked in poetic sophistication, it made up for in just sheer energy and brute force in its presentation, and it had a huge effect on the burgeoning punk movement, both in the U.S. and in the U.K., primarily in London, and this song became sort of an anthem to the protest movement, protest against the establishment, against the man, wherever the man lived. And it was like this movement was waiting for an anthem because this song isn't about any of that. 
It's not about protest. It's not about dethroning the man. What it's about is actually kicking the band off stage that is previous to you on the bill so that you can get up on stage and you can really kick it. You can jam. That's what it's about. And yet it was co-opted by this anti-war, anti-establishment movement. The sentiment around 1968 was that everyone needs to be kicked out. And the song was co-opted for that cause. Now, there's not a lot of events that all four Gospels record, but the cleansing of the temple is one where Jesus comes out and he comes into the temple and he kicks out these people. He arrives at the temple, which was the center of Jewish faith and the center of Jesus' faith, by the way, and he starts throwing over these tables and he picks up a whip and he begins threatening people with a whip. I mean, this is not the lifetime movie Jesus, the Hallmark card Jesus that we are probably envisioning when we think of Jesus. He's aggressive, he's offensive, and he's very, very punk in this moment. He's kicking the man off the stage, as it were. But what's the point? Why is he enraged? Why is he angry? Why does he go to these links? Well, he quotes Isaiah 56, that my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. This house of prayer was to be the image of the temple, and it was to be a house of prayer for whom? Not simply for insiders, not just simply for the Jewish nation, but a home of prayer for all nations. It was supposed to be a gift to all humanity, not merely the center of Jewish faith and practice, but in the imagery of the Old Testament, particularly in Micah and particularly in Isaiah, you have these images of all of the nations streaming into the temple to give praise to Yahweh and to be joined to Him. It was to be a house of prayer for everyone, and it was a place where the distance between heaven and earth collapsed where God came and became present, where His presence dwelled for the purpose of being with His people. And we see here God's fundamental orientation. His fundamental orientation to the world is one of invitation. It's one of relationship. God sees His world dispossessed by their own choice, by their own sin, and He is drawn to make reconciliation. People make pilgrimages to the temple, and yet only because God first makes a pilgrimage to us, you see. Only because the temple exists, and it says that God is for you, and He wants to be with you, and He wants relationship with humanity that is dispossessed by their own sin. And what we see in this Isaiah 56 quotation is that though God comes through the Jewish people, He comes through them to get to everyone, to get to all. And this intent is built into the very design, the physical design of the temple. 
Because there was this place that was set aside specifically to be welcoming to outsiders, to Gentiles. Well, guess where the money changers have set up shop? It's in that court. And they're crowding out the outsiders. They're crowding out the Gentiles because really this is our temple. This is where God meets with us. I think Jesus is upset here about something more than just the fact, however, that there are people conducting commerce in this court or in the temple. He's not upset simply because this is unseemly or this is profane. It's mixing the sacred and the profane. I don't think Jesus would have picked up a whip for the simple violation of decorum. It, in fact, violated the very meaning of the temple, the symbolism of the temple, that God is a God for all people and that all are welcome, and that His people are to carve out space to make them welcome, to intentionally create pathways for outsiders to enter in and become insiders. But think with me here, because the problem goes deeper, because someone allowed them to do this. Someone saw this happening and said, hmm, commerce must commence, enterprise must keep going, and they didn't do anything about it. Who would have done something about it? Well, that would have been the priests. And they were not only allowing this to happen under their noses, but they didn't do anything about it because they got a cut and they benefited from this commerce that was happening. And so this type of distortion of worship gives birth to an economy that is extracting from the poor to provide for the religious establishment and the religious elite. And this has probably, probably been happening since the days of Solomon. So hundreds of years this practice has gone on. Generations have used religion to separate people from their cash to benefit the institution. These are sort of like the early televangelists who today spend time on TV sort of strip mining elderly populations on a limited budget, people that are poor who get the promise that if you give, you get blessing. Well, the priests professionalize that. And Jesus sees these pilgrims who are taking time out of their fields as subsistence farmers. So not only do they incur the cost of going, but they incur whatever cost come, whatever income they may have generated while they were there. And he sees these largely subsistence farmers making their way to Jerusalem to present their sacrifices, these faithful people. And when they arrive what happens? They get fleeced by these money changers working at the behest of the religious people that manage the temple and manage this religious infrastructure. You see, these people had to come and they had to exchange currency because wherever they lived didn't have the temple currency. And it was too inconvenient to carry the sacrifices for hundreds of miles, so they had to come and exchange money and buy things that they could sacrifice to God. And so once you got to Jerusalem, you're kind of stuck. You had no choice. This is like the gas station that is at the rental car facility, the one gas station. 
And so you don't have time to go back because you've got to make your plane. And they can charge you almost whatever they want because they know that if you turn your car in, Hertz is going to charge you 10 bucks a gallon. And you don't want that. And so they what? They extort your timing. They extort the fact that you're there and you can't do anything about it. The temple, you see, is meant to be a, God, a sign of God's free and unmerited favor on his people, his goodness. But his temple has become a house of a bunch of religious grifters who are getting wealthy off the backs of the poor. They're transferring money, you see, from these day laborers to house themselves and to pad their bank accounts. And that's why Jesus calls them a den of robbers. It's theft, you see. Exploitation is theft. And this comes from Jeremiah 7. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. We are safe. That is the presumption of people who trust in their religion to guard them from God's scrutiny of their lives, who manage small changes to align themselves with Yahweh or a particular religious call, cause, but then they leave most of their lives uninspected, unchanged. And if you want to have your tables turned over by Jesus, this is the right approach It is to hide from God inside of religion. One of the best places to hide from God is in the church, you see, where faith isn't a means to know God and to serve His world, but faith is a means to sort of pad your own righteousness, to live a life that isn't all that scrutinized. It's a place that we can pretty readily hide our worst sins our sin of greed, our sin of religious pride and exclusivism, the vilification of other people that are different than us, to hide our nationalism that co-ops Christianity and baptizes it in the signs of the kingdom, where we hide our love for our own tribe rather than God. It's very easy to hide those things inside the church, inside religious community. And at this time of history, the temple had become a distortion. It had become a mockery of the very idea of the temple itself. And Jesus shows up with his merry band of misfits, punks, and he says, no more. This is not religion. This is not Judaism. This is certainly not Christianity. And he puts his life on the line. He puts his life on the line for the outsider, for the excluded, for the unloved, because the place that they were welcomed into the temple had been overrun by commerce. commerce. And he puts himself on the line to overthrow this economic system of exploitation where the poor are treated unjustly so that 
the religious elite can continue to live their affluent lives. Now, here's the thing. What did this change? It's likely that the money changers probably, as soon as Jesus left, were like, oh, well, that's inconvenient, and they picked their tables back up, set them upright, and went right back to the business they were doing before. So what does Jesus do this for, other than just to make everyone mad, which that certainly did? Friends, this is an art work. This is theater that Jesus is conducting here. It's what you would call in religious language a sign. Jesus is giving us a sign of the kingdom, a sign of the fact that Jesus brings the kingdom in a new way. Jesus, like any good art, like punk, is trying to get us, you see, to imagine a world that works differently than the world that we experience. He's trying to get us to imagine a new way of being that's beyond what we can presently see. That's what good art does. That's what punk is trying to do. That's what Jesus is trying to do in this moment because he probably doesn't stop the machinery of commerce happening. They probably go right back to business, but the people that witnessed it, the people get to hear about it, we get to imagine something different. And we get to take that and now imagine a different world from the one that we live in because we're all part of a system that exploits the poor and exploits the vulnerable. And we keep right on maintaining that machinery. Because why? Because it's comfortable for us. Because we don't have to change. And that's everyone's greatest fear. But it goes beyond that for Jesus. There's a cost because this is art, this is theater, this is a sign that can get you arrested and killed. This is Dylan going to Mississippi to support the Freedom Riders, knowing that he might not come back. And any of the other people that travel there with them Many of them didn't come back. You see, he's displacing this temple machinery with and by his own body. This is an abstract art. This is art with a cost. It's tangible. This is a sign that gets him in trouble. And he says that physically you will tear down this body And in three days, he will claim it again to become, you see, the right and eternal and final pathway to God, the final sign of who God is for the world, that Jesus is that temple now that welcomes all, invites all. And this new temple that is Jesus' body, it isn't set in a capital city where people come to it from the wilderness, but Jesus brings the temple to the wilderness. He brings the temple, the presence of God, to thieves and murderers and outcasts and outlaws and the sexually exploited and the widows and the orphans and the aliens, because where do they live? They live outside the gates. They live in poverty, and that's where Jesus as the temple is taken to be punished for this theater, to be punished for calling the world to see something different and new. And what he is saying is he's saying with his body that God takes up residence with you, that the rich 
the establishment, the religious, they can't wait any longer in the halls of power for God to come and validate their lives. But they must join those people that live in the wilderness because that's where Jesus is going. They must, even if they are rich, become poor so that they can see as well. Now, let me just finish with this because I don't know if you get how punk the threat of violence that Jesus brings here. It's so against what we normally think of when we think of Jesus. But he comes into this earthly temple, this physical space, and he takes up a whip. And if you read about this episode in John, John tells us that it's a braided cord. That's not for animals. That's not a defensive weapon. That is a whip for scourging right before execution. That's an instrument of flogging. That's what Jesus picks up. Can you imagine that? And he picks it up in anger. Not in abstract rage, but he picks it up in an anger that is mated with tears. Because what sets this episode up? It is Jesus coming to Jerusalem for his own death, for his own flogging. And he comes and he approaches Jerusalem and he stops for a moment and he looks over it and he weeps. He weeps because this city has become so corrupted. The city that was supposed to mediate the presence of God has excluded God and has excluded the people that God loves. This city now kills the prophets and they exploit the faithful in the name of religion. And Jesus reimagines this temple imagery and he reminds us that God throws open the doors of salvation to everyone. At the same time, warning those of us who are comfortable. While at the same time, warning insiders, don't get too comfortable with your seat. You see, no one encountered Jesus and thought, my, he's an interesting guy. What a neat fellow. I think I'm going to sprinkle some of his spiritual teaching into my spiritual regimen. The priests deserve credit, you see, because they see what Jesus is up to. They know the truth. They get the message because they know they either have to crown him as the Messiah or they have to kill him. That's the sort of division that this episode in the temple brings. And the one who unites the extremes of human emotion, anger, and weeping into a balanced whole, into one person in the end, it demands an extreme response from us. You see, later this whip of cords, as I alluded to, is taken up by someone else. That is Pilate, or more likely, his henchman. Because no one in his position would participate in flogging. They might get blood on their sandals. They gave that to a slave or a centurion. These religious zealots using the power of Rome couldn't tolerate, you see, a punk like Jesus. And so they had him flogged and they had him killed. 
And friends, it's here where we're all implicated. Because if we could read this story and we could imagine this episode and we could just offload the responsibility, all of those terrible religious zealots out there, all of those fundamentalists, if we could just think of the people that are different from us and say, that's who killed Jesus, it would be a rather non-threatening, comforting story. But how often do we make our way in the world with exclusion and exploitation. You see, we don't want a God who dies in cultural shame. We don't want a God who dies out in the homeless camps. We want a God who comes to us. Not a God that sacrificed out on the trash heaps of Gehenna, hell, where we have to crucify all our illusions and all of our religious hard work, where we have to become poor. But he does that so that we can become poor in all of the right ways and where we can join him in dying, in crucifying our illusions so that we can bring his healing to the world. And that's the work of the church. And that's the imagery. That's the art. That's the liturgy that happens every week here that we reenact so that we can be foisted into the world with this image of poverty, with this image of dying for the good of those that live outside. Let's pray. Father, I pray that what would be said about us as individuals who inhabit neighborhoods and workplaces and school rooms and houses would would be that we are willing to die, that we are willing to sacrifice that maybe people don't agree with the ultimate truth claims of Christianity, but at least those who align themselves within town take it seriously. And I pray that we as a church would do that as well and thus become a gift to the world. Not because we are special, but because you are and because you inhabit the praises of your people. And I pray that we would make a welcome place intentionally for those who are still outsiders. And Lord, we lift this prayer up to you in your son's name. Amen.